and welcome to Impact Adventures. I'm Liz Skinner. And I'm Steve Lamb. If you're new to the show, we explore and tell stories of the people and companies that are working to make all investing sustainable investing. We believe that with education and intentionality, we can put the power of capital markets to use for the good of all stakeholders and not just the shareholders. So Liz, how are you doing today? Doing great, Steve. How about you? Good, good. What's what's new on the ESG front this week? What do we got? So this week, Investment News ran a cover story on a new trend that we're seeing among some of the most established mutual fund companies, and it's kind of raising concerns about greenwashing. Firms like American Century and Putnam and USAA are just a couple of the firms that are rebranding some of their funds that haven't been growing as much as some of their other funds, and they're rebranding them as strategies that offer exposure to investments that support environmental, social, and governance criteria. So according to Morningstar, at least 61 funds from 37 different companies have been converted to ESG strategies since the start of 2018. And so the question that some are asking is whether or not these funds are truly taking ESG criteria into account when deciding whether to include particular companies or whether they're just kind of jumping on the ESG bandwagon. Aaron Brockman, Managing Director at Stewart Partners, said everyone wants to be in the ESG space because of the AUM growth, but there are pretenders and contenders. So clearly there, there are some questions coming up. And you know, one thing the experts that Investment News talked to for the story said advisors really need to just do their due diligence and understand what they're buying, um, which of course is not something we haven't heard before. Um, meanwhile, in Europe, I, I, there was other news out of there that suggested almost the opposite. And I'll tell you that. So in Europe, there are some asset managers that are actually clipping out the, quote, ESG integration label from their fund filings because of some new disclosure regulations that are taking effect over there. Uh, regulators are saying that you can't just have vague descriptions of ESG investing, that, that that's no longer going to fly. And there's estimates that about $2 trillion of assets have been stripped of this ESG language in Europe. So what do you think of that? <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's almost like if you put some sensible rules in place, they'll be followed. So weird. I know. Imagine if you could count on the ESG label really representing a fund that took ESG criteria into consideration. Yeah, right. It's it's kind of silly. I mean, the first article, it's it's monkey see, monkey do, right? You know, the AUM, the inflows have been crazy uh, over the last couple of years. Um, I'm looking up the numbers again right now. I mean, I'm sure many of our audience have heard these before, but already this year we're at thirty nine billion dollars worth of inflows uh, at the end of June, which compares to fifty one billion for all of 2020. So that seems like it's on track to be well ahead of that. And twenty-one billion for all of twenty nineteen, and five billion for all of twenty eighteen. So this is a crazy growth in inflow. So I mean, it doesn't surprise me that asset managers want to get on this bandwagon. And I guess it, it to me, it feels like for 
advisors, you know, it's, it's, it's their job to do this due diligence no matter what, right? So I think if they're interested in ESG, they're going to check this out and they're going to figure out the pretenders from the contenders. But I think for the, you know, weekend warrior investor types who are maybe on Robinhood or, you know, another brokerage account or something, I think those are the ones that could get pinched in the sense that they want to put their money to good use and they're going to go out and they see, you know, here's this big company, it's highly rated. Oh, they've got this ESG fund. Great. Let's get into that. And then lo and behold, let's, it, it really doesn't actually take any ESG risk factors into account at all. So like you said, yeah, it's all about due diligence, but I think the non-advisor investor is the one that needs to be aware of this more than the advisors. Um, and then with the second article, you know, I think that's something we've heard a lot of noise about here is that we need proper disclosures, common nomenclature, you know, rules so that if you have ESG integrated on your fund or, or on your product, you actually know what it means so that there's no guesswork. Well, and of course, that's something that we're going to see out of the U.S. SEC as well. They are working on their own disclosure type rules that, you know, funds will have to follow with regards to exactly what they mean by ESG mm -hmm. and some of these other terms. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully we get that and hopefully we get that soon. Um, and, and hopefully, you know... As we all know, sometimes the regulators, not just in the finance industry, but of, of, of any branch, you know, they sometimes their intent is good. And then the rules they put out, you kind of scratch your head. So hopefully what what comes out makes sense and, and is and is helpful. Something that I think that was interesting was there was a person quoted in that first article who was a little bit uh, skeptical of ESG. Oh, let me find that quote. It was... Uh, it's not ESG per se that I'm not a fan of. It's the intent of the regulators and the measuring firms to run everyone through ESG screens. And I feel like, I mean, I haven't spoken to this person, so I get the sense that maybe when they see the SEC discussing, hey, we want to have some ESG disclosure rules, we want common language out there, they're maybe misunderstanding that or mis misplacing that because I don't think the intent of the SEC is to say, Everyone has to do ESG. ESG is it, right? Even though maybe that's how you and I feel. It, they're just saying, if you're going to have an ESG fund, it needs to be legit. And I, I would feel that this person who's a little skeptical of ESG, that they would they would appreciate that, right? Because then they can say, okay, well, now we know what is and what isn't. So I can know what to avoid. And for sure, not all advisors in the U.S. are on board with the idea of adding these, you know, socially responsible type principles mm -hmm. into the investment sphere. You know, we are not there yet. The U.S. is still behind no. Europe in terms of there being kind of acceptance that these principles really need to be integrated and thought about when you look at and when you analyze a company to see how they're going to do in the future. For sure, not all advisors are on board for that yet. So there is kind of this fear that this discussion about how, you know, greenwashing is a is a big problem, it kind of pushes advisors almost further away because mm -hmm. it's like, okay, I don't even know what to believe. So we'll have to see. Um, assets are still flying into ESG here in the U.S. So we'll have to see if that continues once some of these uh, 
U.S. regulations get put in, or if like in Europe, we'll see a similar trend of some of the fund companies pulling back their ESG labels. Mm-hmm. I imagine it will be the exact same story, right? When Whenever the SEC does create some, some formalized rules and fund companies realize, oh, this fund that we labeled ESG is really not ESG and we're going to get caught out. So we're just going to walk that back a step. All right. So let's get on with it. Who do we have today? Today, we have with us Ron Homer, Chief Impact Investing Strategist at RBC Global Asset Management. He's going to describe a new impact investing collaborative called the Local Impact Fixed Income Targeted Investment New Mexico, or LIFT New Mexico. His firm and two other organizations in the state launched it this week with $11 million in assets. Welcome, Ron. It sounds like it was an exciting week for you and RBC Global Asset Management. How long have you been working on getting this investment out the door? Well, we've been working with New Mexico uh, for a little over six months to a year, discussing the possibility of expanding our activities there. So we're pleased to uh, make this announcement, particularly in the midst of a pandemic where the need for additional investment is, is really obvious and great. Ron, do you think that the pandemic has has seen a spike in in investment and impact, or what do you think is overall is driving demand for impact investments? I think a combination of uh, the stark dichotomy in our economy that the pandemic witnessed, both in terms of uh, access to healthcare and the ability to work from home and economics, loss of jobs, exposure to more risk, that combined with the social protests stemming from the George Floyd murder and other policing activities around the country. I think it brought to bear the fact that there are some inequities within our society. And I think also that the changing demographic and the understanding that the economy is much stronger when everyone can participate has um, brought a lot of attention, which I'm hopeful is sustainable. But there definitely has been more willingness and desire to take action. Uh, Now the challenge is to coordinate that action, implement it, and see the impacts. What are some of the challenges of getting these projects done right now? I think the biggest uh, challenge is education. I know people usually revert to education as one of the means, but I, I think there are a number of government loan programs that are available to uh, low and moderate income communities and to uh, previously underserved areas. However, I think in many cases, the effort hasn't been made on the part of uh, originators to address those communities. It's been easier to make those loans in other areas. And at the same time, a lot of the communities and the residents of those communities are reticent or leery of their ability to access capital efficiently and effectively. So I think there's a need on both sides. One, the community has to understand how these programs work and how to take advantage of them and then demand uh, originators, at least create the demand for originators to service them. And at the same time, originators have to be incentive to uh, take additional steps. And as you mentioned before, I think the pandemic and the resulting um, attention to the inequities has set an environment where where maybe both can happen more effectively. What are you hoping that Lyft New Mexico will achieve? First and foremost, uh, that there are uh, investment opportunities within under 
sourced and under-resourced communities that can provide both a financial return as well as a, a social benefit. Secondly, by making people aware of what those investments are, we hope that uh, more investors will seek out making those investments. And on the other hand, we're hopeful that more originators will uh, extend efforts to fill that demand by making more loans. What are some of the projects that you are hoping to fund? Or, or maybe you could just give us some examples of things that you think need to be done. Well, I, I think one of the keys for uh, uh, and, a, and a marker for a lot of uh, access to um, whether it's healthcare or education or jobs or, or stability is home ownership. Uh, first and foremost, we'd like to help extend the access to home ownership. I think there are many new government loan programs that are being introduced as a result of the stimulus packages and possibly additional legislation uh, around infrastructure and build back better uh, acts. Uh, so there, there are some tools out there. Obviously, the pandemic has caused some disruption in terms of the ability for some residents to pay rent or to make mortgage payments. And so we're hopeful that whatever disruptions that may have caused or may cause in the future, that this initiative can help ease it or uh, mediate some of that. So that's one. I think small business in a lot of these areas, there are business opportunities to provide services within local communities, whether it's uh, food shopping, some of the loans that we've made in other areas are around urgent care facilities, uh, healthcare pro professions like dent dentist dentistry. A lot of the areas are underserved around healthcare provision. There are also basic services and that every community needs, and in many cases, uh, there are business opportunities that aren't being taken advantage in servicing these communities. But our our efforts around are around. Um, Home mortgages, affordable rental housing, uh, again, the, the impact of uh, COVID-19 uh, will create a need for more housing. I think the interest rate environment right now lends itself to making that a little more affordable. So we're interested in supporting affordable housing, small business development, home ownership, and access to health care. Oh, that's excellent. Ron, how did how did you yourself get interested in this kind of work? Why are you dedicating your career towards impact uh, and these this type of work? I actually grew up in uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. From the time I was born to the time I attended college, that area went from 75% white to 85% black. As I was growing up, I, I noticed the impact of redlining, white flight, lower services, different types of policing, education, uh, the schools. Uh, I, I just noticed a general decline in the community. Bobby Kennedy, who had just become senator, established something called the Bed-Stuy Restoration Corps, Bed-Stuy Restoration, which was the first CDC in the country. And his goal was to combine government private sector and nonprofits in a way to direct more capital into these areas. And as he was campaigning for president, uh, I was a senior at Notre Dame and my former roommate who was working on the campaign asked me would I ride in the motorcade with the Kennedys as they campaigned. We went through the poorest white 
area in South Bend, Indiana, and the poorest black area, both with similar needs. And at one point, Senator Kennedy turned to me and said, you know, if, uh, if I get elected president, I'm going to need your help. Martin Luther King was assassinated that day. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated two months later. And I graduated and decided I was going to actually use my education and degree to continue that type of work. So that's how I got involved. Went on to get an MBA to learn something about business. And went into banking because, as John Billingen says, that's where the money's at. Since then, I've, uh, I've found it both rewarding and a, a, a need to uh, use the banking system as well as government programs and philanthropic efforts to support making a difference. That's an amazing story, Ron. What do you think Bobby Kennedy would think about uh, where our impact investing space is today? I think he would be surprised at the lack of progress uh, um, and that the needs were still the same. But I think I think he would be an inspiration and, and hopefully some Bobby Kennedys will arise out of this that can bring us all together. He, he was the last politician I saw that could bring together poor white and poor black, you know, across racial lines that had, had appeal. So I think he'd be disappointed, but I think he would be in the, in the fight. Ron, coming back to the Lyft New Mexico fund a little bit. Yes. You said it's it launched this week with $11 million in funding. Where did that funding come from? And what kind of investor returns are you expecting? And what's the timing on all of that? Well, the initial investment came from uh, two anchor investors. The lead investors came from three uh, organizations, two hospitals and one charitable foundation, the Anquam St. Vincent Hospital and the Christus St. Vincent medical uh, group and the McCune Charitable Foundation. However, in other areas, we're hopeful to not only attract uh, endowments from organizations like hospitals, but also community foundations. In other areas, we have public pension funds that have invested. Uh, We have banks that invested around their community development activities and goals. Uh, We also have places where family offices and financial advisors who have um, clients who are interested in doing something to uh, get not only a financial return, but to do good. So almost any investor can take advantage of this opportunity, providing they have a, a minimum of $100,000 to invest. The returns that we give, uh, uh, actually, we, we seek to provide uh, market rate returns based on the risk level. Our, our strategy is a fairly low risk, low volatile strategy. So we think it can work in all types of economic environments. And that's principally because we're using government programs like uh, or government sponsored programs like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, uh, state housing finance agencies and other credit enhancers to minimize the credit risk. And we found that on the interest rate risk that the interest rate returns are comparable, if not better, than similar investments that are not targeted to underserved areas. Why New Mexico? Because we had a group of investors in New Mexico that want to make New Mexico a a better place to live for all of its residents. Our efforts are driven by uh, local interest and local needs and the combination of civic leadership 
uh, and business leadership to make that happen. So this initiative is entirely driven by the institutions and the people of New Mexico. And how do you connect with these local investors? One thing I learned in in, um, 50 years of uh, banking is that um, if you have money to invest, people will find you. And so uh, one, by promoting the initiative, and that's one of the reasons um, the investors decided to combine their efforts so that uh, we can bring more scale. And so um, by publicizing that there is such an initiative and enabling uh, institutions to uh, participate and publicize their own efforts, uh, we're we're hopeful that this will uh, spread through word of mouth and and some aggressive outreach by ourselves as well as our partners uh, Groundworks New Mexico, which formerly was the New Mexico Association of Grant Makers, Mexico Impact Investment Collaborative have been really good partners in helping to get this off the ground, establishing an initiative, and we think um, they'll be helpful in, in the outreach, both for investors as well as for people to understand how the program works uh, in terms of borrowers and for originators. Has RBC led similar projects in other areas of the country or other states? And if you guys have, what what has been kind of the results from those? What, what kind of successes have you seen? We've had similar initiatives uh, to the New Mexico initiative in places like Minnesota, uh, the Northwest, and in Southern California, uh, where groups of investors have come together. But we have been actually making these targeted investments on behalf of uh, a wide variety of investors since 1997. You know, we have maybe four states that have well over 50 million invested in the strategy, some as high as uh, 500 million. So we're, we're currently operating uh, within 49 of the 50 states and three territories. In some cases, it's individual investors who are making substantial investments on their own. We've seen more corporate involvement recently where corporations are targeting the communities in which their employees live and work and where they sell their products. I think what's important about New Mexico is that investors are working together uh, uh, as a group to maximize their, their impact. Oh, that's interesting. Ron, you mentioned you, you've been doing this particular work since 1997. I'm just curious, can you talk a little bit, you know, it kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation about how people are viewing impact investing and the, and the hunger for it now. Can you talk a little bit about just the differences you see between, you know, kind of when you started in 97 and nowadays as far as, you know, just the pure amount that was invested then versus now, you know, what kind of growth are we seeing? What's What's the attitude like? Um, is it taken more seriously now um, and that kind of thing? Yeah. So I'd say the main difference from when we started is there were a smaller group of investors that had an interest in this, um, mostly driven either by their civic positioning or regulatory uh, uh, requirements for banks. Uh, and then uh, uh, some organizations in which there was a champion who wanted to find a way to do this and still meet their fiduciary duty. So I think the main difference has been that group has 
grown exponentially and that uh, even people who hadn't given this much thought are now open to the idea if I can make a financial return that's comparable or better in the same type of securities, but have those securities uh, target underlying activities that are going to improve my community, then why wouldn't I do it? As opposed to the question before, why should I do it? Ron, as we speak, the House of Representatives is debating a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that's actually already passed in the Senate kind of keeping politics out of what will likely happen or not with the particular measure. I wondered what kinds of impact investing opportunities do you think such support would offer and in what areas? The uh, infrastructure bill contains uh, quite a bit of investment opportunities, um, principally a lot uh, driven by uh, resources that will be available to states to supplement uh, some of their existing activities. So it will enhance development, uh, not only for roads and bridges, but also uh, uh, for public transportation, which will then um, actually open up uh, more development opportunities. Obviously the incomes that the workers who are providing this will provide a, a better ability to afford shelter whether it's in the form of home, home ownership or uh, rental housing. So the infrastructure bill will be a, 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 big, a big boost to the amount, you know, the types of investments that are available and, and, and the volume. So that's why it's, it's really important that investors start to look at this field now so they can take advantage of this early on. Uh, I also think that even in the existing stimulus packages that were passed in the previous administration and, and, and at the beginning of this administration, there are a lot of additional resources available to states and to housing finance agencies and, and other uh, developers of ho- uh, affordable housing and, and home ownership within the uh, proposed Build Back Better plan. There are also embedded in that will be support for additional lending programs around healthcare, education, and other human infrastructure opportunities. We'll see what gets enacted, but um, there is a strong potential on the part and, and probably wise for investors today to do some research on what those are, because I think you know, um, just like the um, Build America bonds back in the after the last recession, um, the investors who bought those bonds did quite well. Does RBC offer any type of impact investment that is suitable for a retail investor, or or just you know somebody that's looking to get involved but has a smaller amount that they can deal with? Two of the vehicles that uh, we're using in the New Mexico. Um, initiative are, are mutual funds that have retail share classes where investors can invest as, uh, as little as $2,500, broadly supporting the types of investments that we're doing in New Mexico. Uh, the only difference is that um, for an investor on their own to target where their money's going to, they need to have $100,000 or be affiliated with other investors, say with one financial advisor, 
that was aggregating $100,000 because it, it's hard to find an investment less than $100,000. That's the reason we have that minimum. But uh, mm-hmm. retail investors can invest in if, um, to the extent that we have other investors in that area um, at the same time, they could also have a good chance that their investment would be invested back into the communities in which they lived or worked. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Take care. We'd like to thank our guest, Ron Homer from RBC Global Asset Management, for joining us today. And we also thank Angelica Hester, our editor, for all her hard work to make us sound great. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple, and of course, leave a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. We want to know what you like and what you think needs some improving. If you know of an impact or an ESG story uh, that you think we need to tell, please send it our way. We have wide open ears. And also, you know, if you're an advisor out there and you have thoughts on what we talked about at the top of the show with the ESG disclosures and fund labels, you know, please let us know. We'd be curious to hear what you think of the matter, what you think needs to be done. Um, so give us a shout. I am on Instagram at the Lamb Co. Liz is at Liz Skinner underscore or tweet us at Slim Slam or at Skinner Liz. Our email is podcasts at investmentnews.com. Also, make sure you check out our other podcast series covering topics from women in wealth management to the latest in fintech. And of course, the Investment News Podcast, where our senior writers dig up the latest news from the industry. And remember, life is an adventure. Make an impact. 